I'm John Hendler, and this is Everyday People, Extraordinary Lives. Prevalent question in my career was always, how is it that you sit with somebody so evil and treat them so nicely? And I think, to me, the profound question in that is that, you know, aren't you, aren't we all, you know, capable of doing anything at any time given a certain circumstance? That's Sean Lowridge private investigator with SPL Investigative Services in Marshall, Michigan. He was with the Michigan State Police for 26 years and was a police officer for more than 30 years. Sean, welcome. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for, for having sitting me, down with me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank um, you so much. There's a lot to you. Uh, private investigator <laughs> makes it sound so mysterious, but um, how did you get involved? I mean, when did you become a private investigator? Oh, when I retired. When you, and yeah, that was when? The state police. That was 2015. When? Okay. Yeah. Um, I had always had an interest in, in law enforcement. So um, I was going to school at the university on a scholarship for football. And so I pursued... Central, right? Central Michigan? Yep. Started at Central. And um, uh, Kathleen and I, my wife Kathleen and I, we ended up uh, transferring... Uh, one of the coaches took me to Saginaw Valley State with him. Uh, so I transferred to Saginaw Valley State, and uh, we had two children at the time. So I pursued uh, criminal justice and sociology. That was, okay. yeah, important to me. So, But you knew you wanted to become an officer. Yeah, I, I think uh, what happened was I just got really interested in law enforcement when I was at, you know, uh, in school. And I carried a few security jobs playing, you know, college sports and just trying to make a living for my my family and then I just grew and I was really enjoyed it and then I I got a job right before I graduated in Detroit area went to Detroit Metropolitan Police Academy and after I graduated from college and spent four years in Detroit area where I grew up and so uh, then I got into the state police so it was it was it was a great career I had a great time with it yeah. so so what you do today um, as a private investigator, were you doing that when you were with the state police towards the end? Is this just a continuation of that type of job, or were you doing something completely different? Well, I, I had run, um, I, I do, I'm a private uh, polygraph examiner, so I was a head of polygraph in the state police, statewide commander there. So I was in charge as a commander for 15 years specifically in that forensic science discipline. But when I got into the state police, um, I, I knew I didn't want to be just on the road. So I kind of pursued the detective, the forensics, the crime scene process. Um, science was always important to me. So when I got into going into retired, doing private investigative work, it kind of just, it's the same stuff. You're just working on behalf of whoever hires you. Usually it's defense attorneys or private municipalities who need extra stuff done, whether it's white collar crime or violent crime or, you know, um, whatever it is, you have such an, you know, I, I got exposed to so much crime in the state police that it, it gives you a vast amount of experience, you know. Do you remember what it was like your first crime scene. Do you remember I that? I do. I do. And when that was? Yep. I was a police officer in Detroit area. Um, and uh, I had only 
had uh, less than a year in. I was very young at the time, and um, I was working midnights. And at the time, we had different areas of the city that we were our section. There was A, B, and C areas. Uh, the city that I worked in was uh, right on, bordered by Detroit by uh, two sides, Melvindale, Michigan, where I grew up, actually. I remember that um, there was a call of a man in an alley, lying in an alley. Um, the caller said that there was a squirmish and somebody had, had left the scene, but the guy's laying in the alley. So it was within my area. I was there within 45 seconds of getting dispatched. I was right down the street at the time, and it was in the winter. And uh, when I pulled up, uh, my partner in that section had a different car, so we, we you know, he, he was coming up. I was already out, and this this uh, person was stomped to death, stomped, you know. Uh, with boots, and he was robbed. His pockets were turned inside out. And there's two sets of prints coming down the alley, and then there was one set, bloody, going across the street. Well, immediately, they were intoxicated, the victim was, and the guy he was with, and they, he robbed him. He ran right over to the hotel, and uh, we had him in the hotel. We had all his clothes, and we ended up solving it within an hour. You know, I mean, it was right there. And I, I, I distinctly remember that thinking, how, how could somebody, you know, do, I was young, you know, naive. I, I wasn't, uh, I just thought, man, that's, that's two lives wasted and, and many others, of right. course, the relationship. So it was, it was interesting. And but when you're there, being naive and young, I mean, are you thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I'm seeing yeah. like you'd never seen anything like that before or no did it did it not in i saw it in you know in training right. with crime scene photos and stuff like that through throughout the academy and you know but experiences you know right in the process of that seeing that it definitely it's your adrenaline's going you know and you're trying to think about all the training you've been through and then there's the humanity part of it like this is this human being just was murdered you know so it's, and, and the person who murdered them, you know, they really didn't have a, it, it appeared that they really didn't have a grip on what value of life is to them, you know, or themselves for that matter. So it's, all that stuff's coming at you. And as I've gotten older, you know, I'm older now, so I've seen so much of that, that, you know, it's like, there is this, it's interesting to say the least how human beings respond. You know, there's, there's, there's crazy guy. You have to have a special way about you to handle that not everyone can handle what you did and what you do especially at crime scenes like that it's not for everyone right you can't no, you I, can't kind of get used to it or desensitize yourself no i don't, I don't think you want to yeah. because to be um i guess to be as good as you can be it has to be as real as it can be to you you know to be serious enough and then um, the other thing is, is you have to take care of yourself mentally and, you know, physically and just, um, you know, because you're no good if you're no good, right? So I, I, and I also think there's a grace that you're called to do it. And there's certain things that you definitely need to employ for health-wise, you know, mental health. And, you know, I was in charge of violent crimes in the state police for, you know, a long time and all the criminal investigative resources that we use. So 
I had seen a lot and have and have seen a lot. So when you ask me, you know, the impact of that, you definitely have to be called and you have to use wisdom. You got to surround yourself with people that are um, they're just good people, you know, and not everybody is evil. Right. That that was a big thing to me. And you got married young. Yes. Right? How old were you? Yes. Well, I got engaged when I was 17. Uh-huh. And uh, a month after my 18th birthday, I got married. Yeah. So how do you, as a young college. man, a young, you know, after, you know, young officer, you, you know, you're still relatively young, even after college and everything, and you're yeah. married already. Yeah. To come home after you see all that stuff. And yeah. how do you not let it impact your life at home? Well, you know, my spouse... You know, as a young lady, she's, you know, we grew up together and she, uh, Kathleen was and is and always will be somebody who's very loving and kind. And she was always cared for me well, you know, she made sure I was healthy. You know, we did healthy things. We, uh, you know, kept our family close and our friends were good people, you know, and I, I, and of course, you know, our relationship and faith is important to us. Family's important. So, you know, that was the big thing. And I think her being at peace, like being able to trust that I was going to come home, you know, safely, she just had that. People would ask her and I'd hear her respond, well, I just trust God. He'll be okay. You know, when he goes to work, he'll be all right. So, yeah, I would say that, that that's kind of how we did that. Did you have any instances during your career where you thought, I may not make it today. Yes. When I was in Detroit, I had, uh, there was a shooting that would, I was arriving with another officer who was very close to me, actually. Um, there was a shooting that, you know, when you start hearing shots fired and you're a police officer running across the parking lot, you know, there's a time when you start thinking, you know, I could end up getting shot here. Um, I've been involved in chases when I was a trooper on the road. Uh, where, you know, whether it was a pit move that they taught us. Um, I know when I was trooping out of Battle Creek, uh, there was a shooting that went down in Albion, a murder, and we were chasing the suspects. There was two of them, my partner and I, and uh, we had to pit, pit move them. We pitted them off the freeway, and that was a very dangerous uh, time. On the freeway when I was working, um, a lot of accidents. I mean, our troop car was hit a couple of times in ice storms, you know, fatals, but working on the freeway. That was when I was trooping. And I think, you know, when we went to pick up people on felony warrants, um, that was very dangerous. You know, we've had to take guns off people who were pointing barricaded gunmen. You know, I remember, you know, all he's got to do is shoot right through this house. I'm right next to If he hears me next to him, uh-huh. you know. Yeah, so there was times that... Uh, you know, that stuff went on. And I was very thankful when I got done, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know. I mean, you're under, I mean, that's a lot of stress, stress yeah. and anxiety and worry. And you have to keep your wits about you. Yeah. And yeah. do they train you for that? Or oh, you, yeah. You, yeah, yeah, you have oh, to yeah. be trained. But sure. so that, that makes me think about today, in today's world, you know, a lot of, especially in the last few years, you know, police officers get this reputation out there being gun crazy and yeah. gun happy and out to get criminals. And social media has made that worse because everyone has a phone, a camera, and a phone. Yep. The job is hard. It's difficult. Hard. And how can you second-guess people who are worried if they're going to die in the next split second? Yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to lose. And we're all, so many people are now 
critics and judges. Oh, That's well, I know better than the, yeah, the officer. Our, our chair stuff, right? I mean, I don't mean to sound you know sarcastic, right. but it's a lot easier to go back and have that 2020 vision of you should have done this and you should have did that. And I think, you know, certainly there's been abuses by law enforcement. I mean, I'll be the first one to say that it's just, you know, we cannot have that. That's, that hurts the public more than, in my opinion, the trust for that. It, you know, it, it just is very hurtful to us as a society. But I do know that we have to certainly, you know, trust our police officers to make good decisions. And they're under a lot of stress. I don't know if I was starting my career over today with the way the situations are. And, and you've mentioned them, you know, social media, public opinion. I don't know if I would be a police officer today. I don't think, I, I, I just don't, I don't know if I would want that kind, you know. Of course, I, I, I think that if somebody were to measure it, they would probably would have said that about me, you know, 30-something years ago. Like, I don't know if I'd want to be a police officer, but things have changed. Technology has changed. Information has changed to the degree where, you know, uh, being a police officer in law enforcement has changed, too. Yeah. So, I don't know. You know, I think it's, it's certainly stressful. Um, no matter what you're involved in, you, you know, cr critics are good because they keep you on your toes. I think it's imperative that we have checks and balances. And, um, you know, not everybody does everything right all the time, you know, and I think there needs to be some grace for that, but it also if there's an abuse, it needs to be dealt with. Don't, don't you think that um, because of so much, um, everyone, everyone's under a magnifying glass now, that, that the idea of that, oh, they're bad cops or they're... Um, Things are better now than they were, say, 20, 30 years ago in terms of maybe bad cops or corrupt corruption or something. Or is it or is it hard to say? And I, you know, the metrics that you use from, you know, you, of course, you know, you look at, um, you know, the stereotypical Hollywood corrupt cop who's, you know, engaged in, you know, uh, by, uh, you know, organized crime and right. bought off or whatever. But I, I think that there's, you know, definitely different degrees of corruption. And, you know, I think in the 80s when I started my career, um, drugs were a big process. You know, we had, you know, presidents that were fighting, you know, and outspoken against drugs. Uh, there was a lot of, a lot of that. So, you know, there was a lot of corruption when it came to higher ups. I think if you look at the bigger cities, you know, I know you're from, you know, you know well, you, you, lived, you in lived in Miami, Miami you Washington, know, so, D.C. Yeah, yeah, so you got this, yeah. you know, these, and I grew up in Detroit, you know, working there, and there's a lot of drugs going through there at that time in the 80s and 90s. But I think, um, you know, there's corruption. Whatever that is, there's always corruption in a system that's not perfect. So, you know, there's ways of finding those people and dealing with them if, if we do it right, you know. I, 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 it really is about personal integrity mm -hmm. whatever you do whether you're a politician or a police officer or a pastor or you know it's about oh, or you know and, and journalist you know and and you know it's it's really about you know personal integrity and, and things that you're doing you know whether you're a teacher or coach doesn't matter so um, how hard was it like you've said to me in the past that you were on the scene of some brutal crimes, oh, some horrible, horrible things, and you horrible. can't tell that to people. You can't share yeah. 
that with many people. So how do you, I mean, it's not how do you hold it in, but I guess you have to talk to somebody about it. But how do you process that? Uh, And you know all these things, and we don't. Well, I think, you know, I mentioned it before, there is certain people are called to do certain things in life, you know. Uh, I've had a lot of people say to me, how how would you sit down and interview a child molester, knowing, or even a child murderer, you know. I do remember some very, very violent crimes that I've seen, and um, I've been able to, whether it was professionally, you know, being the head of uh, criminal profiling, uh, and we have... You know, the state police at the time afforded us um, behavioral scientists that were working with me in my unit that I ran, or my section, and in criminal profiling, but they were also departmental counselors. So there was this, there was this switch of positions where, you know, I was their boss when it came to criminal profiling, and they became my doctor as a behavioral scientist, so I could always talk to them, okay. you know. And of course, during the midst of my, my career, I lost a 21-year-old son to H1N1, Isaac. And so I was able to talk to them and, and manage to work through that and as well continue to be that of violent crimes and the state police and, okay. and, and process that stuff. So there's certain things that you have to employ to maintain self-care, yeah. you know, that's important. Are those resources more prevalent today for today's officers than when you first started out? Oh, yeah. And they're more accepted in the field. You know, when I started, um, you know, police officers were, you know, rough and tough. And, you know, they don't they don't share their emotions. They don't talk about, um, you know, the things, you know, it's it's paramilitary and it's process. You know, you talked about the training, how they train you to deal with stress. And so all of that uh, in, in combination can, if it's not, if, if, if we hadn't morphed, if we hadn't changed, if we hadn't adapted, I think it would be a lot worse today. And I do think that there's a lot more resources for people and they need to, especially in mental health and, uh, you know, public service. You know, whether it's hum- the humanities, you know, yeah. that's, that's important. So how stressful is your job today? <laughs> right now you're doing, yeah. uh, you're, uh, especially in, uh, in lie detection, polygraph. Yeah, I've done that for 28 years. So and that must you know. have changed a lot. Because, you know, to the common person out there who knows only about polygraph from, in the old days, from movies, and now maybe like from Jerry Dr. Springer Phil. or yeah. uh, Maury <laughs> Povich, yeah, yeah. Um, they would say polygraphs aren't admissible in court. Sure. Is that true? Well, it depends on what state you're in, yeah. for one. Um, New Mexico, it's accepted, you know. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and the issue, by the way, for a test, a, a forensic discipline, is what we call the Daubert test. And in the 30s, um, polygraph was put up to the Daubert test. And at the time, they hadn't developed it the way it is today. With research and, you know, uh, you know investigative research by universities that do... To, to see if they're accurate and reliable and how robust the studies are. It's, it's one of those things where you, you know, it's very, the state of art and technology has grown so well, they're very accurate. They're, and there's a lot of different um, variables that go into it. You know, it can be very subjective because you have to formulate questions relevant to the issue being tested. Right. So, 
you know, you got individuals, you got psychology, you have a lot of, um, you know, <laughs> you got two individuals speaking in a room, talking, discussing. You have one individual who's experienced one way of life, and you have another who's the person that's the practitioner or the examiner who's who's trying to communicate certain things to get certain uh, truths from somebody. So it's imperative that you're able to be able to adapt to the process, I guess. You know, right. a lot of, you know, there's a lot of children growing up suffer PTSD, right? So there's a lot of, you, you got to have a lot of experience in child development, you know, understanding human beings. And you want to get that, that past experience. Uh, intelligence in other words you want to know about their past and tell me about your upbringing and how you were raised and stuff like right. that it's imperative the way to help understand how people think but, or help them make a decision but you have to ask these questions a certain way correct is there yeah. a, is there a standard yeah. way that you learned how to do this because otherwise you can and you're talking about biases and yeah exactly you could you could make it very subjective and yeah. and then they could get tossed out right yeah and i think that's part of the issue of the 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 process of you know the technique being used and you know you word questions in a yes or no dichotomy now um, you discuss all this getting to that place of formulation the question yes or no to a simple did you do this have you ever done this, you know, that kind of thing. And you, you, you talk about it. it takes, you know, a good criminal specific examination. And when I say this, a good one should be at least two, two and a half hours long, uh, and in administrated that examination. Now, you know, I, there were times when I've sat and, you know, I've sat in examinations for four or five hours. Because you got to discuss this stuff, especially on the, the level of violence. You know, if you're talking about a homicide, it's, you know, it, you don't want to make any mistakes with human lives, right? right. So, you know, and you got children being molested. You know, you don't want to accuse somebody who didn't do it, you know, or who did did it, who did, excuse me, who did commit this crime. And you don't want, you don't want them to get away with it either. You know what I mean? You, you want to confront them and give them an opportunity to... To tell the truth that's the other part of human aspect it's like listen you know it's hard on a human being to keep a secret <laughs> let's be honest about it yeah. you know it's it's almost like uh you know it's it's very difficult for someone to continue to live a lie all their life and i, I only bring this up because i was just talking about it the other day and it's totally unrelated to criminal science and everything but when i was in third grade um I was talking in class, and I got my quiz ripped up. I got a zero. But it was such a minuscule thing. It, it was like 1% of my grade, and it wouldn't have mattered. I still would have done well. I was a sure. good student. Yeah. But I felt compelled the next day. I wasn't even asked by my parents. My father didn't ask me this. I just surrendered that information willingly. <laughs> I couldn't keep the secret. But yeah, it is hard to keep a secret, right? It, it is. Why? We, we hope it we is. want to share it with people because we want that yeah. connection of some kind. Yeah, and I think there is this place of... Uh, right and wrong inside of us. I think that, you know, and, and from my perspective, you know, I've seen a lot of people make very good decisions and very bad decisions. And I, and I don't mean to be dualistic, but when you work in that, it's it's either, you know, you're dealing with good or evil, right? That's, that's kind of how we see things. 
And, you know, when somebody is involved in making a passionate, bad decision that is harmful for themselves, for any individual, you would hope that there's enough grace or space for them to say, I did this, because they're the ones that have to live with it. You know, they're, they're the ones that's going to have to carry that around within them. You know, and, and um, I just truly believe that, you know, as human beings... You know, I, I am a pastor, too, so it's like I truly believe that people need to confess before God their failings so that they can be loved by God and know that they're loved by God, you know. That doesn't give them a right to go out and hurt people by any means, but certainly nobody's perfect. Um, and so there needs to be that grace for anyone. And, you know, I, I've, I've been involved with so many violent crimes and seeing the damage that was done. You know, just uh, just some sad stuff. You know, yeah. so why make it worse? Have you ever um, had someone who is taking the polygraph, and you you know that they did it? I mean, how does that uh, influence your, I guess, interrogation or the way you ask the questions? Like, have you ever said, just tell me? I mean, you can't oh, do yeah. that, can you? Or can you say, oh, yeah. oh, just tell me. I, I, I know you did it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Listen, you know, you're building rapport. You're, you're building a relationship. They're scared, you know, a lot of them, you know. And you don't ever really have to tell people what they've done. They know what they've done. So you definitely have to confront them once the examination's over. But you do it in a way that you, you didn't change your disposition with them when you, you started. Even if, if they're denying it, denying it. Because of it's not a sociably acceptable reason for somebody to do these things, you know. I mean, this is this is you know some of these things are just unspeakable. So, you know, for for them to be able to admit that they did this, it's like you're a monster or you're just evil, you know. So you your your approach to them is you treat them like you know one like you would want to be treated or one of your people that you love would be treated. And two, you, you treat them no differently than you have been treating them. Uh, you know, it's like you have to look at people with the eyes of mercy, no matter how, whatever brought them to that place to do whatever they did. And, you know, whether it's, you know, murdering a baby, you know, putting them in a, you know, locking them in a trailer and setting the trailer on fire or, you know, shooting them mm -hmm. or, you know, doing a drive-by shooting, you know, uh, shooting a child or anybody you know it's any human being and, and it's worse for for us i think as human beings when a child because you know society uh you know we should take care of our children just like we need to take care of our elderly people you know and it's our responsibility so when that happens ugh, it's it's you know but you have to deal with your own humanism too it's like how would you want to be treated if you made a bad choice in your life that you you just you you really i don't know how you got there but you really made a bad choice. And so how would you want to be treated? And you still speak the truth. I, several times in my life I said, listen, you need to understand, you're gonna tell me what you did and then you're gonna to go to prison for the rest of your life, but I know you need to tell me. I know you need to tell me because if you don't, every time you look in the mirror, you won't be able to look in the mirror. And you don't want that burden in your life. You know, it's like, you, you, you don't wanna carry that around. It's, it's like, we're not going to be here forever. Yeah. 
And that's what I said to him. And do, and do and do people oh, of confess yes. when you say it like that? Oh yeah, they will. They want to. Right? Oh yeah, and I I think that's that's only fair. Listen, you know, this is humanity. This is life. You did something wrong. There we have a justice system in place, and you know you will have to pay for that. You know, and that's why I believe that when people get out of prison, they've served their time, whatever society requires of them, that they deserve an opportunity to, to move on with their life like anybody, you know. I just believe that. I think if you, you know, and I don't believe in the death penalty. I just don't. I, I you know, when I was a young man, um, you know, I, my view is, but today, I do not believe in the death penalty. I think it's, it's just wrong. And you know, based on, and I feel pretty good about saying that, based on what I've seen in life. And even the system's not perfect. You don't ever want to just take a life. It's just not good. You've, you've seen too much. Do you ever think that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, certainly. I'm not a bleeding heart or nothing like yeah. that by any means. But I think, you know, there is there was a day when I said I've had enough. You know, that's why I retired. It's like, you know, in 2015, I... In 2012, I was in, you know, that was uh, our state of Michigan at the time had four of the top 10 most violent cities mm -hmm. in the United States in 2012. And I was in charge of violent crime. So it was like uh, you got Pontiac, Detroit, Flint, and Saginaw. And I spent, in the 90s, I spent a lot of time in Benton Harbor and Grand Rapids and the Niles and, you know, Kalamazoo. And I spent a lot of time over there. And <clears throat> so... Um, just, you know, very, very difficult time. And I, I, I knew that um, I wanted to, it was time for me to get out because the grace for what I was seeing was beginning to lift, you know, it was wearing me out personally. Um, I had lost my son in 2009, so that was a lot, you know. Um, so I just knew, yeah, God's calling me out of that. And the private investigative work and the polygraph stuff is it's really helpful to people mm -hmm. people think they can beat the polygraph right <laughs> do they still yeah. do they still try these little tricks i oh, mean yeah, i know you told me about yeah. countermeasures yeah, right countermeasures. what are some of these countermeasures and and, and are, did, i mean can someone truly do that or well, is they, that i would say you know um so i i did a lot of studies i worked with the michigan with michigan state university Right. So being the head of polygraph, we did a lot of, I was at a research for, you know, those type of practices. Right. So Dr. Frank Horvath, who was at the time was involved at Michigan University of, or Michigan State University. And then he uh, became the director over um, uh, credibility assessment for the government. But I did a lot of work with him for countermeasures. We, we did studies. Right, so he would bring students, and my examiners would would do the research, and we'd set up these, you know, certain requirements of the research, and they would try to employ countermeasures, right, to see how they could do it. Most of them were detectable because they weren't trained in polygraph. Mm -hmm. So to be really good at a countermeasure, you have to know when to employ it, how to employ it, um, and um, what works and what doesn't. And you, so you'd have to be very familiar with it, even even to the degree that even a polygraph examiner per se, if he's not practicing countermeasures, it would be hard for them to even employ him mm -hmm. to get away with it. 
um, the general public may not believe that, but I think it would be hard uh, unless you're practicing at all time. You know, and part of our training in the state police is we worked closely with the, the, the NSA, the CIA, a lot of federal agencies. We worked very close to them. And one of, the, one of my instructors was uh, Dr. Shirley Sturm, who was the director of the CIA polygraph. She was a doctor of psychology and she also psychophysiology. So it was, you know, she trained us in, in, in countermeasures. So it's, it, it was one of those things where, you know, you learned a lot how people could manipulate um, the results based on countermeasures. And how do they manipulate? How do they try and manipulate? Uh, they physically, you know, whether they're pressing or they bring a tack, put it on, squeeze their, you know, sphincter, Physiologically, because most of the polygraph recordings is data recorded by your, you know, your autonomic nervous system. So, and it measures change in that. So what they're trying to do at a precise time is, is basically employ change to look a certain way. What, what about people who convince themselves, you know, what their truth is? Yeah. I mean, they're telling the truth, right? Even if it's yeah. not the truth. But it's not that simple, right? There are other ways to catch yeah, yeah. that they're not telling the truth. Yeah, and, and what you're really talking about is somebody who, what's the degree of uh, psychopathy in a human being in their mind? And we talked about that when I said you sit down with an individual. So you have to measure that. You have to measure that based on questions you ask. Um, a lot of it has to do with human responsibility, right? Like if I was to say to you, John, what's the worst thing you ever did in your life? You know, and you told me you stole a candy bar, right? There, there are certain people, no matter what you say to them, they would never take responsibility for something that they did, right? It, it's just they won't do it. Very narcissistic, self-preservation. So their paradigm is they can formulate and justify their behavior even to the point where they'll blame it on someone else. Like the reason why I did this was not... I didn't do this. It was really this person who made me do this, uh-huh. right? Whether it's the victim at the time, you know, depending on, again, the, the way they're developed as a child and their mind and the way to do it. But you talk about, you mentioned mental, that's a mental countermeasure. You have to, you know, people employ mental countermeasures as well when they're sitting in there and you're asking them a question and they will literally try to change the question in their, in their mind so that they, in their mind, can justify answering it in their mind truthfully. Those are mental countermeasures, you know. So there's, there's stuff that people employ, and you do see it. It isn't like you just run one set of chart, collect one set of chart data. Right. It's a consistency over a, a three to five chart data collected years ago you strapped me in the yeah, chair and everything that's yeah. un- that's a very uncomfortable feeling <laughs> now is is it meant to be that way or is it is it because you have these uh across your chest uh, certain components and then you're sitting on something right and, yeah yeah and yeah. is it meant to you know it, it, there's not much wiggle room there you can't really move around no, right you're not supposed to move around right but uh, i just remember thinking boy this is so uncomfortable and it's very intimidating. Yes. And, and could you imagine going into, you know, a law enforcement setting, being accused yeah. of a crime that's, you know, you're facing maybe several years, if not life, in prison. So, yeah, I think that's intimidating. I think that certainly can impact a person's, you know, anytime a person's not comfortable in their environment, you're going to, you're going to see a, a, some type of um, 
I guess some some something is going to come from that, right? So you have to work through that with them, and you know you want to you want to get the best results, you know if, and I think polygraph and its progression, um, you know I went this I just went to Seattle uh, a couple months ago and I went to a, a conference there, um, Northwest Polygraph Examination uh, Examiners Conference, and um, Mark Handler who's you know, highly regarded in our profession, was teaching. And, you know, when you talk about non-intrusive or non-invasive um, credibility assessment, right? So really what you're trying to do is you're going to find out whether this person has any credibility in what they're saying right. toward this issue, right? I did a lot of work down in uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina with Frank Horvath, you know, we, a lot of discussion, a lot of talk, you know, the government does non-intrusive um, biometric physiological assessing for credibility, right? So if you go to the border or you, you know, you, you go out of sea, you go overseas, you come back, we, you know, we go through biometric processing for facial and, um, you know, retinal, right we're all everything's digital so you know that's for identification there's also non-intrusive measures that are employed like heat temperature doppler you know cardio volume blood volume going through your body when you're being asked simple questions those are non-intrusive you're being monitored when you're at the customs office right. and they're asking you so where are you headed or what did you do while you were there, you know, and why are you in this country? So those are all good things, right? I think it's less intimidating to than being strapped in a chair and going through some credibility assessment, as you say, you know, polygraph. So, you know, yeah, and I think it could hurt somebody too if they're not comfortable. It certainly can affect their natural autonomic response. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. You know? And you're considered an expert. Right? You're an expert. You're yeah. well-renowned in the field, right? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I've been doing it a long time. I certainly stay up on my continual education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, yeah. You know, I, I, I ran the state police polygraph in the state of Michigan as long as it's existed since the 30s. I was, I was the longest commander, serving commander in that position of, you know, 15 years as a commander over polygraph and I studied it hard and um, well I wasn't perfect by any means you know I mean polygraph's not perfect but I I know that it was a it's an excellent tool for law enforcement and for human healing if it's done right right if it's done right and, and, and the human aspect of this to, to kind of wrap this up is being a pastor when you're in that room are you an investigator and a pastor? Are you more pastor than investigator? How do you Well, when I balance? was a police officer, yeah. you know, the things that in those kind of situations, you know, I certainly was there as a police officer, yeah. a sworn law enforcement officer, and they knew that. Did I employ um, the skills as a human being to be sensitive and compassionate and kind? And yes, yes, of course. I think, you know, I, I'm a true believer you're going to get more with sugar than you do salt. And um, you just want to treat people like you'd want to be treated. 
or somebody you knew, you know, somebody that you loved. And um, I just think that's right. But yeah, there were times when, you know, uh, even as a human being, there were there were crimes that tested me, like people that tested me when, you know, as a human being, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here, the environment, they're sitting in front of a state police officer, command officer, you know, I'm not dressed in a uniform, I'm in regular clothes and talking to them, but they still know I'm a state police officer. You know, I'm a detective for the state police and I'm talking to them about a crime that, um, you know, they know that their life is going to change if they tell me that. That's very evident, you know, and they've spent most of their time in life practicing deception, you know. Um, when people, what do they do when they're, they lie, when they're scared? You know, it's like they're afraid. Why? Why are they afraid? Because it's about self-preservation. It's about, you know, these these self-protective mechanisms that we employ to kind of, we. that's why it's harder to lie than tell the truth. It's harder to remember everything you said. And that's why, you know, over a time period, you keep asking and, you know, asking what happened. Okay, tell me again what happened. I just need to know. You know, and then it changes. Right. It's you know, tiring to try oh, and remember yeah. a lie, right? Oh, yeah. oh my yeah. gosh. Pretty soon you just say, okay, you know, like, <laughs> this is what happened, you know. I, I, uh, I, you know, I was talking during a test and yeah. <laughs> the teacher ripped my stuff up. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, well, thank you, Sean. Oh, you're I welcome. wanted to try thank this you, new man. thing uh, aspect. We were discussing this before we started, yeah. asking a couple random questions just to see, you know, yeah. how you would respond to that. So, most unusual question you've ever been asked. Oh, well, <laughs> most unusual question, I think. Um, it's not, it, I wouldn't say it was unusual, but I think, um, really, I don't think there's words that can measure um, the volume of, um, of the impact that we have on one another. So when I'm asked, how is it that you can sit it's not an unusual question. I think it was the most prevalent question in my career was always, how is it that you sit with somebody so evil and treat them so nicely? Uh-huh. You know, and I think to me, the profound question in that is that, you know, aren't you, aren't we all, you know, capable of doing anything at any time, given the certain circumstance? Right. And that, that would be my response to, I'd say anybody based on what I know as a human being, what I've experienced, what I've seen, what I know as a human being myself, at any given time under certain circumstances, a human being is capable of doing anything. It's not excusable, I'm just saying. And you know, evil's always been here and good has been here. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, (laughs) Solomon says it, right? Right. Nothing new, nothing. What do you wish you knew more about? Um, I wish I knew more about uh, caring for people and loving people more. I wish I could, you know, compassion's a big thing to me. You know, um, I I wish I, you could never learn too much about being compassionate. That's what I wish I could just continue to learn more to be compassionate. And there's a lot of different variables to compassion, patience, kindness, love, long-suffering, perseverance, you know. Uh, when my son died, 
I, I studied heaven through all the material, whether it was um, biblical, any kind of you know literature I could read about heaven, because I you know I believe in heaven. I believe that there is a heaven. I don't think that we just float around like you know ethereal beings. I, I believe that we there's another part of this eternal life that we live. So I spent studying a lot of time heaven, you know, and so it's it's all in there compassion and love and heaven you know i i believe that we all have a creator that's created us and you know loves us loves us with the utmost love i believe it or we wouldn't see love here at all sean thank you very much i, I we could talk for hours <laughs> but we don't have that much time but yeah. thank you again well, thank very you, much John. and yeah. thank you for listening and please share this uh with those that you know who you might think might be interested in listening to uh, what we had to say today. And uh, again, thanks for listening. And until next time, may the good news be yours.